All right, it's done. The transfer window is done and dusted. Deadline day has come and gone. A lot of money was spent, a lot of players moved, a lot of hearts were broken over the past one month, I think, especially if you're a Tottenham supporter. But all in all, everyone's happy. Well, not everyone, I feel. Now we're at that point where we're going to start a new cycle of news stories, rumors, a lot of the pointless stuff that goes on when it's not transfer season. And I feel like we have that to look forward to this summer with a whole new bunch of transfer sagas that will no doubt start up. In the meantime, we're going to take a look at everything that's happened over the past one month. And that's what we're going to explore in this episode of the Pitch Life podcast. Now, when you look at transfers as a whole, when you look at the amount of free transfers that are coming up uh, soon, you know, a lot of contracts are expiring at the end of uh, the season. It's really crazy when you think about the names that are going to be free agents at the end of the season. It's it's amazing. I mean, you've got Mbappe, you've got uh, Gareth Bale, uh, Isco, Di Maria, Dybala, Perisic. A lot of really, really good players, a lot of quality players that are all just going to be free agents. Any any club can snap them up. No, no money. I mean, sure, um, the players themselves will demand quite a few, you know, signing on fee and whatnot to make up for it. But you're not going to spend 70, 80 million on these players. It's going to be good business for whichever club snaps them up and bad business for whichever clubs are losing these players. Unless, of course, you're Gareth Bale and you're leaving Real Madrid. But overall, I, I can't think of a time where we've had such a tremendous wealth of talent that's just going to walk free in the summer. You're right about all of it, other than Gareth Bale, of course. That man is never leaving that golf course in Madrid. So Real are going to have to either kill him or do something drastic to get rid of him. But on a serious note, I feel last season we witnessed two white whales, Messi and Ronaldo, move clubs for next to nothing. And now I feel the same is about to happen to who I feel is the heir apparent, the biggest player to potentially move for free in this transfer window or the summer um, would have been Kylian Mbappe. So I feel he's had a relatively successful time at PSG. Uh, no one can deny he's won trophies, well, guaranteed the league every year. You know, he, he's, he's done a lot at PSG, I, I agree. But has he done more than what is expected of a PSG player? in a PSG team. I mean, PSG win the league every single season anyway. He still hasn't won the Champions League with PSG, which I feel is their ultimate goal. So has his time at PSG really been a success? PSG is a strange one because you assemble almost like Avenger-level talents, right? And they still don't live up season after season, especially in the Champions League, as you mentioned. His real test will come trying to show what he's made of at whatever club he goes to. And, you know, if the papers are to be believed, I think that's probably going to be Real Madrid. PSG invested $162 million in what I feel was a generational talent. So in that sense, I don't think he's really fulfilled his generational potential, which is why it looks likely that he will end up at Real Madrid in the summer, at least, for free, which is, you know, the most flabbergasting thing. I still don't know how PSG let it come down to this you know I mean everyone knows as you've said that Mbappe is a generational talent everyone knows that he's, he's one of the two that we keep talking about right now the other being uh, Erling Haaland I, I don't think it would matter to Mbappe that much you know being sold for a world record fee and stuff especially if he's getting his uh, dream move to 
Madrid, where you can follow in the footsteps of his idol Ronaldo. But for PSG to let something like this happen, that's quite shocking. We don't see something like this in the game anymore. I mean, sure, you see players leaving on a free, but it's not going to be the, you know, the best player on your squad and, you know, arguably one of the best players in the world. It's amazing. I, I don't I don't get it. Yeah, I think we'll we'll finally get to see this next phase of his career, which, like you mentioned, is Real Madrid. It's something that we've been reading about forever. I think even, even before he joined PSG, there were uh, reports of... Uh, Mbappe wanting to go to Madrid, Zidane wanting it, wanting him at Madrid, and you know, all of those things. So yeah, I feel like that's finally going to happen, and I feel like that's a transfer saga that hopefully will be closed once and for all. Now, like I mentioned, I mean, there are a lot of good players who are out of contract pretty soon. You know, Dybala has been linked with Liverpool and Arsenal. So I think it's uh, best if we start with the Premier League. I mean, let's face it, we discuss only the Premier League. And what better place to start than... Uh, Newcastle, where the the Saudi money has finally been uh, flowing through the club. It's uh, it's begun to speak for the club now, hasn't it? They haven't wasted time. Uh, they've used the first transfer window they've got to really bolster the squad. Yeah, they, they've spent like 90, like 90 million or something, I think, in, in a January transfer window. Something like that. And considering Man City's first signing was the infamous Rubinho... Robinho, yeah. I think Newcastle are doing marginally better than that. They, they're making economical signings, still on inflated wages, I must say. And, of course. Um, you know, inflated price uh, tags as well. But I don't feel they're going about it as bad as Man City did right at the start. So, Kieran Trippier, good right back, obviously aging, and probably won't get into most elite teams in Europe anymore. But a good fit for Newcastle. I think he brings in experience. He brings in a winning mentality from Atletico, not Spurs. And can provide some sort of stability to the squad. And he was he was their marquee, well, the first marquee signing, right? You you always remember who the first signing would be. And I think Trippier is not a bad choice. It's a sensible purchase. You know, like you brought up the Robinho transfer. I think Robinho was more of a statement signing from Manchester City, which is, you know, we are here, we've got this money, and we're coming for the best players in the world. Whereas for Newcastle, it's more like, we need these players. So we're going to get them, whatever the cost is. And I, I feel like a huge chunk of that comes down to the fact that, one, they're in a relegation battle right now, and two, someone like Eddie Howe is the manager. And Eddie Howe, at least, is not known for making you know flamboyant, spend money all over the place sort of uh, transfers. So like you said, Trippier, good signing, wealth of Premier League experience. And yeah, he will add value to this Newcastle team, which I think Newcastle supporters will at least be hoping that they can avoid relegation. Funny story about Robinho, though. He actually thought when his transfer went through that he was going to Manchester United to join Alex Ferguson there. Really? I thought it was Chelsea. No, he, he thought he was going to the red half of Manchester. He knew he was going to Manchester and then he ended up at City and then regretted it completely. So I, I hope Trippier knows where he's going. I'm, I, I presume he knows he's, he's in a relegation dogfight. But yeah. The Robinho thing reminds me of uh, the joke that would circulate in the early years of the Sheikh Mansour era at Manchester City, which is they bought the wrong Manchester club. And since then, they've just been trying to, you know, cover up their uh, mistake and make it look like this is what they intended all along. So, yeah, I guess Robinho was uh, guilty of making that same mistake then. Now, moving on from Trippier, they've signed someone called Bruno. I don't even know how to say his last name. Bruno, do you know? Guimarães? I don't know. Guimarães? Okay. Just reading off the article here. Yeah. 
40 something million i think from leon i i know nothing about this player but they spent 40 million on him so he's either really good or really really bad what position and does he play is he a striker or something i th- i think he's a midfielder oh, okay right. uh i think i think more so than trippier he's supposed to be sort of their statement signing you know we've got the money and we're coming for some players now but uh it'll be interesting to see how this signing settles into the Premier League and settles into this Newcastle team, which is, let's face it, is not a squad that's in the best of shape right now. Uh, the other signing that really stood out for me, which, you know, sort of points back to their, e- not economical mentality, but sort of like a sensible approach to transfers, is uh, Chris Wood from Burnley for like 20, 25 million, you know, that that price range. He's a decent enough striker, Played for Burnley, good amount of Premier League experience. I think it's pretty sad for Burnley to lose a player like this. And uh, I think it's even sadder for uh, Jurgen Klopp right now because Burnley are losing an international player, which means they'll probably have a stronger, more well-rested squad, you know, after the next uh, round of internationals. And we all know how that upsets uh, Klopp. I know you meant that as a joke, but that that gag is never going away. I I mean, I, you know, why fight it? Might as well join in. But about Chris Wood... On the face of it, it looked like Burnley have got the short end of the stick here, selling their star striker, as you said, to a relegation rival. It just weakens them. But, you know, now that the dust has settled, I feel that it was a transfer that was needed uh, and I guess was beneficial to both parties here. Newcastle needed a strong enough striker, aerial, uh, you know, strong strong with his head, good in the air, can can hold the ball up, decent enough striker. And on the flip side of it, I wouldn't value Chris Wood for more than 10 million. And Burnley ended up getting 25. So I think it's been a good deal from both sides, even though Burnley might end up regretting it at the end of the season uh, if they do end up getting relegated into the championship. However, 25 million in the bank, you can uh, definitely you know, rely on getting some good championship players in to, to push you back up into the Premier League should that happen. So overall, quite a good deal. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's sort of long term business from Burnley, though, isn't it? I mean, they they definitely have weakened their squad in the short term, and the last thing you want is to be dragged into a relegation battle without you know a, a good striker up front. And I, I don't know, I I don't really follow Burnley. I don't know if they've even signed a replacement for him in this window already or not. I I have no idea. I don't think so. I at least I haven't heard anything. Now, back to Newcastle. They, they they tried really hard to sign more players in this transfer window. The one player that they were linked with for a good good amount of time was uh, Jesse Lingard from Manchester United. They, they couldn't get that deal over the line as well. With the kind of form Jesse Lingard has been for all of his loan clubs and never for his parent club, I think it would have been a coup on Newcastle. Definitely. Definitely. And... I know, I know I've said this again, this is probably like the third or fourth time I'm saying it, but it again points to, you know, this sort of like a sensible approach to transfers. And speaking of United, I, I have no idea what they were thinking when it came to Jesse Lingard. I mean, Newcastle were ready for a loan with, you know, an option to buy sort of a signing. Do you know how much United wanted for him? Like I, I read one report about United instead just saying that we would rather sell him, you know, to you permanently. But this is how much money we want for him. Do you know how much money they wanted for him? No idea. 50 million. For Lingard. For Lingard, who, who funnily enough, is going to be out of contract at the end of the season. Wow. 
they're gonna they're gonna lose far more now uh, with that with that move. I mean, just trying to go f- go for an audacious price. Yeah, I just don't get it. I mean, look, even if you wanted to move the player on permanently, right? Why quote an outrageous price that no one is going to pay? It doesn't make sense. I mean, Newcastle, at, at you know this season at this stage of the season. They're not rivals for United, not unless United somehow intend to, you know, themselves get stuck in a relegation battle. You're not gaining anything by keeping the player on when you're not going to use him. And you're not really losing anything by selling him for, you know, a moderate fee to a relegation-threatened club. Especially when you think about how he hasn't really performed for United even after, you know, he came back from West Ham. He He clearly had a purple patch there came yeah. back and has been in, you know, in different form. I wouldn't say bad, but um, nothing near the level of a 50 million price tag. Yeah, that's true. And I just don't get why they didn't get rid of him when they had the chance. It's, it's absolutely baffling. The only thing I can think of that is worse than the Lingard saga is Paul Pogba and his stay or extended stay at United. Pogba's another player now that is going to be running out his deal and... You know, I don't know if to say hopefully for United fans, leave at the end of the season in the summer. It's been an indifferent time at the club, I feel. He's not lived up to his potential, which can be said for many players who are going to leave on free, but especially for Paul Pogba. Maybe he hasn't had the team around him uh, that he needs, clearly because, you know, Didier Deschamps with France can get the best out of him. That's true. But... United just haven't been able to click that defensive or attacking midfield trio or duo, and Pogba hasn't fit into that. So I think it's a good deal for all if Pogba does leave, where he goes and, you know, what kind of wages clubs can afford with him is remains to be seen. Yeah, and, you know, similar to Mbappe, links between him and Madrid or Juventus have been circling around forever, you know, as far back as I can remember. And yeah, it will be interesting to see where he ends up because I really think it could be PSG, you know. Oh, I read a r- report recently that uh, Pochettino was in talks with uh, the PSG board to, you know, sort of come to some sort of an agreement to let him leave the club at the end of the season. And apparently PSG are open to that because they've got uh, Zidane in their sights and they want Zidane to be their next manager. Zidane was one of the driving forces behind uh, the whole Pogba to Madrid situation, you know, he was uh, he was the person who wanted Pogba at the club, as far as I can remember. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't Florentino Perez. So, yeah, PSG could be the next step. I mean, he's French. He'll get to play in the French League, which I, I guess he wants to do if he wants to relax a bit. He'll get to be under Zidane and, you know, PSG can pay those wages. So, uh, if I was a betting man, I would be putting my money on uh, Pogba to PSG. First of all, PSG are going to pick him up on a free, but the whole saga will then maybe reinforce Mbappe's departure as well. Um, or or the fact that Zidane's uh, incoming, you know, Pogba incoming as well, and that might convince Mbappe to stay. I don't know if Mbappe might just have that in his rearview mirror when he's considering a move to Spain. But we'll have to, we'll have to track the space and see you know, over the next six months. One club that I'm surprised hasn't been linked with Mbappe, because even a club like Liverpool, who don't spend massive amounts on a player, and I know that when I say this, people are going to point out the Virgil van Dijk transfer. But outside of that, if you look at it, Liverpool don't spend big on 
players. They've been linked with Mbappe, but a club like Chelsea hasn't. And it really makes me wonder why Chelsea have been, you know, like the original uh, poster child for uh, rich football clubs. They most likely have the money to buy someone like him, but they haven't. And it, I wonder if it points to more of their current situation with their squad, you know, with uh, how, how they're struggling to tie up contracts for defenders and how they would most likely need to focus their transfer attention on filling those gaps. Historically, yes. Chelsea have been considered a big spending club. I don't think we've really done that in recent seasons. I mean, we've recouped a lot of the money that we actually spend. Or we've gone with the, or rather, we've gone with the model of sell first, spend later. So it's been a pretty, you know, we've always tried to stay in the green. And really, I mean, images, image, image is one thing, but I think realistically, if you look at it, we 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 even funded the Lukaku transfer selling 12 of our players uh, at various levels from academy all the way to the first team. I feel we would struggle in many ways to meet Mbappe's wage demands, even if he were to join us on a free. We have a lot of players who are worth, you know, 30, 40 million, uh, like Ziyech, like um, Timo Werner and others, but they are on higher wages than you would have seen in most clubs around Europe. So I think the wage demand is really not just going to be unaffordable, but also shatter our wage structure because bringing in someone like Mbappe is like bringing in someone like Haaland. We tried that the last window and we, you know, decided to walk away because it was just not feasible. I mean, you pay 120 million up front on transfer fees and then you have another 50 million that you pay for things you don't even see, right, on the pitch. So it's going to be a similar deal with Mbappe and I don't think Chelsea really have the ambition to really outlay those plans and to your point, I think we, we're trying to tie up problems of our own. We've, um, we've got players missing in the squad. The players who are fit are trying to leave the club, or at least it seems like in the media at least. We have three, three, three of our main first-team defenders are out of contract, Christensen, Rudiger, and Aspeliqueta. Out of the three, I feel Christensen is probably the furthest away from an extension, and I'm kind of glad about that. I think he's been a decent enough player. He's had a lot of injuries, but um, his head is set on Barcelona, so good luck to him if that does happen in the summer. We'll get the best out of him, I think, for the next six months, which is which is great. Uh, Rudiger and Aspilicueta, on the other hand, senior players at the top of their game, at least Rudiger, he is a bloody beast this season. And... Van Dijk, you know, himself named Rudiger as probably the best defender in the Premier League this season. So, I mean, he had to, you know, out of pity, because what, what's he going to say? No, I'm still the best Premier League uh, defender. No, I think that's more reality. It's not really out of pity. I think uh, Van Dijk's not, you know, as good as he was in a title win in your title winning season with with Liverpool. But someone, someone, someone has to take that mantle every year. So it it just can't be. Van Dijk, you know, forever, we, even though Liverpool fans might like to think that. Um, but, yeah, Rudiger is one target I'd like to keep, for sure. Uh, keep him long-term. He's 29. Chelsea have this weird policy of um, offering only one-year extension to players over 30 so that we can bring in younger talent. But 
I think Rudiger being 29, we need to nail him down to a three or four year contract, which will probably be his last at a at a at a really big club to get the best years out of him. And if if people like Thiago Silva have taught us anything, it's you know you never know, you never know how long the golden years will last. So Rudiger, I'd love him to sign an extension. In terms of attack, I I don't even know what to say. I mean, we seem to be like this um, Ferrari without an engine. You know, we have all of the makings of a, uh, a fierce attack on paper. Lukaku, Ziyech, Pulisic, Kalamatsunadoe, Mason Mount, and the list goes on. But when you have an attacking midfielder in Mason Mount being your biggest goal-scoring and assisting output, I think there's definitely something wrong there. Uh, Tuchel's managed to still keep this team from losing. I mean, people think we're on a bad run. Yes, we've had a lot of draws, but we haven't lost. We've only lost two games in the last 13. I mean, I'm 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 not claiming that's good, but, you know, people think it's worse than it is. Um, so the And the only two games being to Man City and Liverpool. So, again, uh, not doing too bad, but we need to keep killing games off, which we aren't doing, to be honest. So um, the, it does worry me that we've had... Um, an empty transfer window. We were linked with Osman Dembele for one. It was a strong link. Why we would be linked with an injury-prone player, I have no idea. But, you know, Tuchel knows best, I guess. He's coached him at Dortmund. He's coached him before all of his injuries and all of that recklessness began at Barcelona. So maybe there's a connection there that can flourish. Uh, We'll probably continue to be linked with him over, you know, until the summer. And I think on the flip side, the fact that our squad was decimated just before January started, the fact that our squad was decimated just before January started, and ironically, Chelsea as a club not being able to recall any, any of their, I don't know, what is it, 11, 12 loanies all across the Premier League. I mean, that that was quite disappointing. We had um, Conor Gallagher, you know, that we spoke about in our last episode as being a star performer. Um, Crystal Palace didn't didn't want to let him go, and I think Chelsea gave in at the very end because we do want him to flourish even more. We want him to go up in value. We don't want him to go grow as a player, so we can bring him into the first team next season. But doesn't really help our cause for the next six months. Staying in London with Arsenal, a club that has seen a resurgence of some sort over the last couple of months, and we've talked about them in a in a very encouraging light under Mikel Arteta's um, latest run of results. Surprisingly, yeah. They haven't had a rollicking window by any stretch, but I'd say their outgoings have made more news and probably more satisfaction for Arsenal fans than any incoming transfers, wouldn't you think? It's a bit of a mixed bag, though, isn't it? I mean, they've, they've, they've gotten rid of a lot of players, that's, that's true, uh, but they've really left their squad quite thin. And I... I'm I'm not surprised that they sold uh, Aubameyang. I mean, like, we knew that that was going to happen. All signs pointed to that. But uh, it's more questionable how he's gone, you know? I mean, uh, it's essentially a free transfer to Barcelona. Uh, it's a fantastic deal for Barcelona financially. I don't know how it'll work for them, uh, you know, integrating a player like that into the squad. But financially, they're signing a good player. For Arsenal, they're getting a player who commands really high wages off their payroll, which is good. There, there will be 
uh, savings, you know, to doing that. I still don't know about, you know, getting rid of someone like that for free, though. I mean, I'm sure they would have been able to negotiate something out of Barcelona that would have given them, you know, some some sort of financial value. And it's, it's like a really weird uh, loan arrangement that they've got with Barcelona for him. Overall, I think it just goes to show you that Arsenal have a lot of problems that are under the surface, you know. Uh, it, it really highlights the importance of the summer transfer window for the club and uh, more so it sheds just a whole new light on this season and how pivotal it will be for the club because if they don't finish in a Champions League spot, that's you know, whatever revenue they're going to miss out on that, that's that's going to be a financial hit for them. It's it's greatly going to impact the sort of players that they can sign over the summer as well because who, who wants to go to Arsenal uh, when they haven't qualified for the Champions League in what, like the past two, maybe three seasons now? I, I don't know how long it's been. And it's not just something about attracting new players, it's also about keeping the existing ones because... Just this morning, there was a report that I read that uh, City and Liverpool are waiting to see what happens with uh, Arsenal and whether they qualify for the Champions League because they've got their eyes on uh, Saka, who is a very, very talented young English player. And if you're Arsenal, you don't want to lose a player like that. And they might not lose him that easily because he he will still stay loyal to the club, but it'll definitely test the club and the players' resolve, you know, when it comes to keeping such players. And on top of that, the Gunners tried an audacious bid to sign um, that tall guy, what's his name, Dusan Blahovic? Blahovic, yeah. From uh, Fiorentina. Fiorentina. um, Eventually, I think Juve have come in and captured that bit of business as well. And why not? I mean, why would you go to any club in north london right now with the way they're they're performing i mean arsenal clearly need a striker they've lost Yang. no matter how much of a nuisance he was he was a great striker he's got a lot of goals for them he was important yeah even with the kind of money problems and instability that juve are currently experiencing themselves you can imagine how far off the pace Arsenal are if Vlahovic still chose Juve over coming to the Premier League, where you know the money would have been more, the the just the appeal of the Premier League, but it's it's just it just wasn't there. Just it the, these um, both both Arsenal and Spurs, if if I could include them, are having a torrid time with trying to attract the best talent. They've they've got a then settle for mediocre talent at an inflated price, which is which is just not which is just not what you want to do when you're building a project to, you know, find yourselves in the Champions League or the top four uh, for next season. Yeah, and you know, speaking of Spurs, I I think like that's just a whole other bag of issues that they are you know dealing with over there. It's. I, I don't know how much you'll agree with me. I don't know how much, you know, general football fans would agree with me on this. When you look at Spurs in the transfer market, you don't get the impression that they are cold and calculated. You don't get the impression that they are focused on what they want to do. You just get this feeling that they try to squeeze out so much of a bargain out of, you know, the selling club that they they just end up sort of shooting themselves in the foot. I mean... It it started off with uh, 
Traore from Wolves, right? Uh, I, I don't know who wanted him. I don't know if Conte wanted him or if Daniel Levy wanted him, but it started with that. And he ended up going to Barcelona on loan. I mean, Spurs couldn't even get that done. Now, of course, with uh, Traore, who's a you know, La Masia graduate, the, the you know, desire to play for Barcelona was probably more. Like, that's fine. But it just points to the fact that there are other clubs out there that players would definitely prioritize over Spurs. And the Luis Diaz uh, saga that just happened is further proof. Yeah, this was another situation where the player chose another club over Spurs. And you can't blame Spurs for that because at the end of the day, that that is a big factor that, you know, a lot of fans don't really consider. Daniel Levy was furious that Liverpool could do something like this. But as a Liverpool supporter, I'm wondering, why don't you have the sort of ruthlessness that Liverpool do right now? That, you know, Manchester City do, that Chelsea have always shown when it comes to the transfer market. That whole image of... Daniel Levy being a master negotiator, I don't think, not only is it not true, but that bubble has burst a long time ago now. People are people are now making a mockery of what Spurs can achieve, both in the transfer market and on the pitch. And it's a shame that they have a manager like Conte who's so ambitious, who, who even knows the exact player he wants, no matter where he's playing in Europe. He's like, I want that player... And that position will be filled for the next three years. And that's that's how he goes about his business. Levy just seems to fuck all of this up by using his stingy tactics. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, funnily enough, I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, over the past one month, I've started watching uh, Tottenham's All or Nothing documentary on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And no, this isn't, this isn't an endorsement of Amazon Prime. We're not being sponsored by them or anything. I just wanted to tell you that I've been looking at it. And it's really interesting watching a lot of the behind the scenes stuff because it's not really something that you get to see that clearly on social media or anything like that and you know getting to see Mourinho sort of uh, how he you know interacts with his players and stuff and the role that Daniel Levy has within the club and they at least the documentary portrays it as Daniel Levy as being like a very hands-on executive he's he's at the training ground a lot he holds a lot of meetings with the managers and stuff which is which is all great like it's great that you know you've got someone on the board of the importance that, you know, Daniel Levy has being so involved in the day-to-day matters of the club, but that somehow just does not translate to recruitment at all. I mean, even in that documentary, to a certain degree, his his stinginess, because I can't think of a better word, his stinginess really does come across. And I think that's what's going to hold Spurs back, you know, longer going forward. And we did mention in a previous episode that, you know, Antonio Conte is probably probably their last chance to push the club forward because if Conte walks then where where do you go from there and I know we voiced this uh, sentiment earlier and I, I feel it's still incredibly valid now they, they did sort of do something in this transfer window right they they brought in a couple of Juventus players I don't know much about them you know if reports are to be believed they are good signings for suppose which is great but I didn't see those players being linked with the uh, the club until after they lost out on Luis Diaz to Liverpool. So it feels more reactionary than, you know, proactive. I think they've left their squad a bit thin uh, for the second half of the season. I think they're in a similar boat to Arsenal where what happens over the next three months, what happens between now and, you know, the end of May, whenever the season ends, 
it's it's going to be hugely important to Spurs' ambitions, not just for next season, but you know, over like the next five years or so, how they're going to react to something like that. The way Spurs are playing on the pitch, I do believe they look like a top four team under Conte. Obviously not long term, but they, they have gone through a, a, a decent patch of late. Adama Traore really would have filled a gap in their uh, in the Spurs squad. I mean, they needed a winger. I, I really don't know how good he would have been for the team, but they, they did need a winger. And, you know, so you can understand their focus on Traore and uh, Diaz. The whole Diaz saga reminded me that Liverpool have, you know, orchestrated a coup. They've done well to snatch him away from Spurs. But thinking about this month in particular, you've got the African Cup of Nations, obviously, and yeah. Liverpool are missing two of their main, well, I wouldn't even say two of their main, their two main players who could, you know, lift a season as opposed to breaking it completely, Salah and Mane. I feel like they've been able to dodge the pressure dodged the expectation pretty well with the rest of the squad with Firmino, Jota, I know Minamino is it, and uh, Origi, I think probably left. Um, are we seeing this as a conscious shift from Klopp to bolster that part of the squad? Because you've you've never you've never really seen any of those attacking trio out for very long. So why would you change a winning combination? But is this something of a long term? plan now so there are two ways to look at this right it could it could either be a bolstering of the squad or it could sort of be a way to prepare the squad to move these players on because Salah, Mane and Firmino all three have just 18 months left on their contract you know I mean come the summer they'll be in their final year of their contracts and negotiations with the front three have begun but they're at you know varying stages Uh, obviously for Liverpool fans, the most important one to tie down is Mo Salah. I think that's the one that they're looking forward to the most. And when when I first... I thought you were going to say Divock Origi. Divock Origi, uh, you know, he's he's always going to be there. In in 10 years' time, when Steven Gerrard is lifting the uh, Premier League trophy as uh, manager, Divock Origi will be standing right next to him wearing the same Liverpool jersey. He would have done it with a 94th minute winner at Everton. Again. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, thanks to another Jordan Pickford uh, fuck-up. But, I mean, seriously, uh, I think the one thing that Liverpool fans are really looking forward to is seeing like a Mo Salah contract announcement because that's the one Liverpool fans are the most afraid of losing. I mean, even when I read the Diaz uh, news and that Liverpool had signed him, I will confess that I, I don't know anything about Diaz. I've been a huge fan of him ever since they made the announcement and I saw the YouTube videos. But... Uh, the first thought that I had was, I hope he's not a Salah replacement. I was a bit encouraged to learn that his positional play and his preferred foot points to more of being a Mane replacement. So hopefully, you know, the transfer has been made keeping such things in mind. But in in a best case scenario, it's signing all of these players to bolster our attacking trident. In a worst-case scenario, it's to potentially replace them over the next few months. It could go either way because I'm not even sure if contract talks with uh, Mane and Firmino have even begun. I think it puts you in sort of a double-edged sword kind of situation where the fact that your attacking trident is so good 
no matter who you bring in as a deputy or a number two, will sit on the bench for most of the season. And, and, and that's where I think the, the disconnect is because even a good player needs pitch time to be able to improve and become a world-class player. You, you can't have people sitting on the bench and coming off, coming, you can't have people sitting on the bench, coming on as a substitute and winning you a game. So they, especially in the Premier League. So I, I think eventually when contract talks do, you know, finish and the dust settles, depending on which one of your attackers are left and which ones leave, there'll be an interesting dynamic of, of, of how Klopp is able to, to elevate these new players to world-class status because replacing a world-class trial is not easy. Um, we, we felt that after the whole Drogba Lampard era. I mean, we've, we haven't, we haven't been able to ever since, uh, not, not world-class at least. So I think that's going to be one conundrum. I don't know if Klopp, if it's Klopp's problem really, because he's clearly stated he doesn't want to stay beyond 24, 2024 at least. So I don't know if he sees that in his vision. Um, but I'm sure no, no doubt he'll want to leave the club in a good place. Yeah, that's true, and uh, you know it's it's a it's a good problem to have, but uh, it does make recruitment pretty difficult. And and I know we joke about Devokarigi, but when you when you actually think about it, replacing Devokarigi is is not going to be easy at all. As much as I like to joke about it, and as much as I would like to see someone else, someone better in his place, I'm acutely aware that there are. A huge number of challenges behind that because just just take a look at Devokarigi, right? He's like 26, 27. He's sort of entering the prime of his career. He's not on particularly high wages. He's uh, not someone who's going to command a massive transfer fee. He has a huge amount of experience playing in the Premier League and scoring goals in the Premier League. He might not be prolific on the same level as Mane or Salah or Firmino or, you know, someone like that. But he still has that experience. Now, when you think about it, who are you really going to get to replace him? You're not going to get someone young or, you know, around his age with that amount of experience who is going to come cheap either, you know, from a transfer fee point of view or, a, you know, salary point of view. He is, in a lot of ways, the ideal backup. It's just from a a skill perspective, there is a bit lacking about him, but replacing him is going to be a, a pretty massive task. Liverpool keeping hold of Origi also means that you get one guaranteed game or two guaranteed games every season against Everton because he will just keep scoring stoppage time winners after stoppage time winners every season. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, speaking of Everton... That's that's all assuming that they're even in the Premier League, you know, for us to face them twice a year. Because given the current state of affairs surrounding that club, it's uh, they're not really in a relegation battle yet, but uh, they, they very well could be. They've made a change at the right time. I think they haven't waited too long. Um, I wouldn't know if it's the right change. They did sack Rafa, uh, which... Probably was understandable, I'd say. Um, and and expected, I would say. Yeah, considering performance, considering considering performances, results, and the fact that you know this, he he just hasn't been able to reinvigorate this squad. Right. 
added to that, they sold one of their most valuable assets in the squad to Aston Villa um, in the form of Luca Dean. I think um, that may, in hindsight, come back to bite them. Uh, we'll we'll have to see. Uh, I don't really know how um, the, this squad is going to take shape under the new manager, that manager being Frank Lampard, uh, who's returned to the Premier League now after having left Chelsea. Um, again, for me, leaving his Chelsea career out of it, therefore leaving the bias out of it, I would say it's not the best manager that they could have signed uh, considering his limited experience. However, the position that Everton are in and the experience that he already has at a big club, I don't mean in terms of um, trophies, I mean in terms of the pressure, in terms of the expectation, in terms of the politics at a big club. Lampard will be well aware of things uh, like that at, during his time at Chelsea. So from that point of view, especially trying to lift a club that is, as you mentioned, fighting relegation very, very soon, not yet, but very soon, um, is it seems like a pretty decent signing in terms of manager. And they've they haven't been um they haven't wasted time in um bolstering their squad. So they've uh, they've they've acquired two amazing signings, I think, for from an Everton point of view. Deli Ali, unwanted by Tottenham, unmanageable by Tottenham, but may turn out to be a diamond in the rough for Everton. And Donny van der Beek, uh, finally getting some playing time. And uh, it's about time the Premier League saw what that boy's about. Uh, he came from Ajax, very, very highly rated. And I think I've never really seen what Donny van der Beek could really do. And hopefully Frank Lampard can can bring that attacking prowess out of him. So there are two two things to unpack here, right? One is Lampard coming in as manager into the transfers that they made and uh, to just add to what you've said about Frank Lampard, it's I know you said that it's a decent signing, it's a good signing for Everton. I personally don't agree. But if you're in Everton's position right now, it is really difficult because on the one hand you want someone experienced, right? But none of the experienced people are available at this point in time. So, in a way, maybe out of what was available, Frank Lampard was probably the best, but I don't think he's a right fit for the club because I don't think Lampard has proven himself as a manager as much as people think he has, right? Like, he was part of uh, Derby County, and yes, Derby County have had their own issues. I think we're seeing a lot of that with uh, Wayne Rooney today. Uh, a, a lot of issues that he had to deal with when he was managing that club. But even in the Premier League with uh, Chelsea, I think his first season was more of a uh, you know, it was a free pass because they knew that it was a manager coming in with a restricted budget and couldn't really do anything in the transfer market to sign the sort of players that he wanted. So in a lot of ways, I think that first season, he did do well, there's no doubt about it, but I think he did that well because there, was, there were no real expectations around Lampard and the club at that time. And, you know, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Looking at Everton right now, it's like you said, they could very well be in a relegation battle really quick. And Lampard has absolutely no experience navigating a relegation battle, which is which is a completely different challenge than when you're at the top of the table, you know? One thing that does concern me about Lampard is I don't know how strong he is when it comes to the defensive side of the game. I mean, if you look at his uh, final season at Chelsea, the one where he got sacked, 
Chelsea were leaking goals and Tuchel came in and with the same set of players, he, he didn't buy a single new defender in any defensive position. He then turned them into a Champions League winning team that were very, very, very strong at the back. They they went from leaking goals in all possible manner to maybe conceding a goal every five or six games, which was fantastic. And I think it, in a way, highlights exactly how poor Lampard was when it comes to the defensive side of the game. And the defensive side of the game is important when you're at that stage and you're trying to, you know, stay in the Premier League. As far as the signings go, as far as, you know, Deli Ali and Donny van de Beek go, yeah, Deli Ali, I've been a fan of. I thought he was really good at Spurs when, you know, he was in form. He hasn't hit that form in the past few seasons. That's true. But in a lot of ways, it's good business for everyone involved. Spurs got rid of an underperforming player. Everton got someone with proven Premier League experience and talent. They just need a coach to who can, you know, harness that talent. And finally, Donny van de Beek. So overall, I wouldn't say it was great for Everton, but... I think they're going to struggle a, a, a bit more going forward because Moshiri, you know, the, the Daniel Levy of Everton, uh, seems to make some erratic decisions, like selling Dinia when Benitez didn't want him and then sacking Benitez himself a week later. I feel like, um, well, first of all, I feel like you should probably shit on Lampard a little more. I don't think you've done it enough. Uh, over the last five minutes, but have, have I not? Have I not? Oh, I'm no, sorry. No, I don't think so. I didn't. I didn't see any hint of um, going to the depths of who, who you would go. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Go some more if you want. I'm. I'm. I'm sorry. I'll be. I'll be better prepared uh, the next time. I'm sorry. But in in all seriousness, I I was just looking at the Premier League table, and Everton seemed to be in this sort of illusionary situation, like Spurs, where they've got three games in hand. And they're about three or four points off the relegation spot. So it is going to be a challenge for Lampard to get this team up and running pretty quick. But if they do, I think they could easily hit maybe 12th or 13th spot in the next month or so, which could be a good you know, platform then to challenge teams like Aston Villa and Leicester City, uh, Leicester City who, who are not, not doing that well either. So... It really depends on how fast he can galvanize this squad. I, I definitely believe a mid-table squad is something Lampard can work with um, because I've seen him work with the way he did with the Chelsea squad in that season that you mentioned with, where we had no transfers um, at all, no, no incoming stars. It's, it's funny that you mentioned Aston Villa because uh, something, something just hit me right now and that's that uh, we're going to get to see Lampard and Gerrard uh, that rivalry, you know, renewed in the Premier League again. And it's going to be on a managerial level, yes, but uh, that's that's definitely something exciting that I hadn't really thought about. Now, Aston Villa themselves, they've, they've had a pretty good window, I would say. Uh, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, plans that the club had before or if they've just got this much faith in Steven Gerrard that... Uh, They've gone ahead and made the transfers that they have. And they've they've had some interesting people come in. Luca Dino, like you mentioned, from Everton. I think he came in for like 25 million, which is um, a not, not a bad fee to pay for a player of his uh, caliber. Everton supporters might feel like they deserved more. And 
they, they might have an argument there. He's a good left back attacking. He's going to create a lot of chances for the club, which is good. The biggest one for me, however, and again, this, this might be personal, you know, being a Liverpool supporter, was seeing uh, Philip Coutinho back in the Premier League. We're seeing the uh, little Gerard and Coutinho uh, reunion as well. And I don't know how to feel about this. Uh, Coutinho coming back to the Premier League, that's something that's been uh, mooted for a very long time. I knew it would happen someday, I just didn't know when. And I certainly didn't expect it to be Aston Villa. He's, I, I think he's on a loan from Barcelona right now. And he certainly made an impact in his first game. But it will be interesting to see whether Gerard can bring out the sort of form from Coutinho that you know everyone was used to seeing when he used to play for Liverpool. With the whole Coutinho subject, I find it unlikely that anyone will be able to replicate the form that he had at Liverpool before he left for Barcelona. Uh, you know, not uh, not in any sense Steven Gerrard, but if he can even become half the player that he was, I think it will definitely help Villa finish in a very strong position come the end of the season. I find this whole Liverpool reunion fan club um, a bit amusing. I mean, I heard that Luis Suarez was touted with a return to the Premier League with Aston Villa. Um, Again, yeah, Atletico, Aston Villa, not comparable, but still, you know, the the fact that he's coming back to the Premier League, which is a higher standard of football, he's proven himself to be a world-class striker in the Premier League, so always makes sense. And, you know, uh, I'd love to see him back. Uh, Again, I see it very unlikely that he will be the Suarez from whatever that season was, 2014-15, scoring hat-trick after hat-trick. But 13, 14. remember, he's he's playing for a different club now. He's playing for a club where, you know, the sort of quality he can offer is still sufficient or adequate for Villa to ascend up the table. So no, no, um, no arguments there. I, I don't think I'm prepared to see Luis Suarez in the Premier League scoring against Liverpool, if I, if I have to be absolutely honest about it. I know that there have been instances in the past where we played Barcelona and he did it that's that's fine i just don't think i'm ready to see it on you know regular basis at least twice a year the way villa played against liverpool when they met recently you're gonna have to get used to the possibility of villa beating liverpool on occasions i think so i mean i'm you know honestly that's that's happened enough in the past under brandon rogers or what was it 20 whenever the hell it was uh, 2015 or whatever it was. Aston Villa used to hammer us at Anfield and, you know, at their home stadium when they had uh, the likes of Ben Teke up front. And, you know, that's why we bought him and he was a flop for us. But I don't think I'm prepared to see Gerard winning against Liverpool with uh, Suarez and Coutinho. I think if, if you had told a Liverpool supporter that this is what was going to be happening in the Premier League, you know, five years ago, I don't think anyone would have believed you. And now, finally, the, the final club in England that I feel we should speak about, and that is uh, Manchester City. We tried to hold off as long as we could, but, you know, you have to bring the champions back in at some point. Yeah, because, I mean, what do you even say? I, I don't even know what to say. They, they sold uh, Torres to Barcelona because why the hell not? You know, they've got 10 other strikers lining up. Oh, I'm sorry, they don't have strikers. They've got... 
attackers who will line up to score those goals. I don't see this as bad business for them. You know, probably good business for uh, Barcelona, but certainly not bad business for them. They they just reuse that money to buy someone else, you know. They probably match whatever they got for Torres and buy someone who's twice as expensive. So all in all, great, I guess. And even if they did go all out, even beyond uh, Man City's capacity, and that's weird to say because someone like Erling Haaland or Harry Kane, perhaps, who might finish that final piece of the puzzle for them, supposedly, not that they need him, but if they went all out for that, it, it, it's, it would just make them stronger. So I don't know where City would really go from here because um, it's almost like the Jack Grealish situation all over again. You didn't need Jack Grealish. You signed him because he was clearly a good player, but then... For, for 100 million, no less. 100 million. And did it really add enough value? I, I don't think so. And, and, and even bringing someone like Haaland in, who's been phenomenal, again, a generational talent like Mbappe, I, I don't know if it will really improve the Man City squad. It's probably, it'll probably leave them the same, which would then be really bad for Haaland's career as well, because he, he, he'll see a massive dip. Um, and as you said, they, they, Man City play like a collective. They don't have individual players who are absolutely world-class brilliant, uh, other than Kevin De Bruyne, of course. Um, but uh, Are you really telling me that Raheem Sterling is not world-class brilliant in your eyes? Raheem Sterling is out of this world. I don't know what to call him. So, yeah, I'll just... Um, oh, so since he's I'll out of this there. world, he can't be world-class? Is that what you're saying? No comment. I'll just leave it there. Now, moving on from Manchester City, because clearly we have nothing to say about them, because what else can someone say about them? We've spoken about all of these clubs, how their transfer business went, how, you know, all of the players that they signed and the caliber of those players. If you had to pick one winner and one loser from this transfer window, who would it be? I have a tie. I, I thought we had enough of this in the previous episode. Like, why, why can you never make up your mind on this shit? Why do you always have to make them a tie? Just pick a fucking club. You said it yourself. I mean, we want to see the Lampard versus Gerrard rivalry. So I've, I've picked both winners from both clubs. I mean, Everton, strange one to pick like a winner. But I think potentially Dali Ali and Donny van der Beek would seem like very, very shrewd, astute signings, if um, those are the correct words to use. And Luca Dean, obviously, for Villa, will be a good signing as well. So bo- both winners in my book. I know you'll hate the tie, but I think I, think I, can't, I can't really separate them. Unfucking believable Hey, come on. Um, and you'll be, well, it's, it's probably going to get worse because with the losers as well... I've got no. I'm just kidding. I've got. I've. I've only got one choice with that one. The worst signing of this window, for me, was in fact Chris Wood, but not the way you might think. So not for Newcastle, but I think the loser really here is Burnley for me. Only time will tell, but it is likely that they might get relegated, having made that decision to sell Chris Wood to Newcastle. 
Well, I, I agree with you there because my loser of the transfer window is Burnley as well. I mean, you're bottom of the table, you're... You're, you're not even close to safety, and one of your relegation rivals has strengthened a good amount, even though they've spent a lot of money. And you go ahead and sell your striker to them. So I, I expect Burnley to go down, honestly, at the end of the season. And I, I think a part of that will be their business dealings during this transfer window, for sure. Burnley being a loser, spoken like a true Klopp tribe. Hey, you pick them too, all right? But but moving on, moving on to who I think is the winner. And I I don't think you know who I'm going to pick here because we haven't discussed this club. And I feel like maybe we should have, but we're kind of out of time here. I think Brentford, for me, are the winners of this transfer window. Uh, not to take like a sentimental angle with Christian Eriksen and everything that happened to him during the uh, Euros over the summer but it's the fact that Brentford are in a good enough position. They don't really look like they're going to get dragged into a relegation battle. At least I hope they don't. They play good football. And they've signed Ericsson on a six-month loan, which, who knows, you know, in the summer it could become a permanent thing. Uh, a player of uh, that caliber, with that amount of uh, Premier League experience, doesn't become available as often. It rarely happens. I, I can't think of the last player who would have fit this criteria. And I think he can have a positive impact on Brentford as well. So for me, you know, they're, they're the winners. If you liked what you heard, why not catch all episodes of season one of the Pitch Life podcast on your favorite streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Spotify. Don't forget to follow us at Pitch Life Pod on Twitter and Instagram. See you next time. Bye.